Okay. So I'll do a little bit more of an inter a brief introduction. Captain Chaby, uh, former Navy SEAL team captain. Uh, he was also part of the preservation of force and family. He's a leader in a variety of different areas. And we are delighted on Medical uh, Vitality Explorers to have him tonight. Uh, the, the first question I want to start with, Captain Chaby, is about resilience. As this particular time in the world, we need a little bit more about how to be resilient. And, and maybe I'll just start with how do you, how do you define that? How do you, how do you actually, what, what does resilience mean to you? Resilience. I consider it one of the four cornerstone intangibles. And I use the word intangible deliberately, um, mostly because I think human nature and American culture focuses on that which we can see. We love outcomes. We love strength, speed, intelligence, IQ, SAT score. We love all these things that you can measure you can stack up and compete with each other on. Um, and, and unfortunately, some very important characteristics and elements fall by the wayside. And resilience is one of them because they're intangible. They're hard to define. They're hard to wrap your hands around and measure like, wow, you're a 3.8 resilience. You can't do it. And it's hard and it's a shame because resilience could be one of the most important elements for somebody to succeed in life. It is ha having been on the other side of the recruiting pipeline for the SEAL community. We don't look for speed. Yeah, you need to be able to run a certain speed. You need to be kind of strong. If you're an average JV athlete, you could become a SEAL physically. But we're more interested in finding resilience. And we look for it. What is resilience? You know, for, for resilience from what? Uh, I'll, I'll say from pressure and adversity. And I'm, I'm going to start here with perceptions, everything. We all make our own pressure. We all create our own adversity. You know, when 9-11 happened, I, I'm not going to say I, I, I was jumping for joy, but it was game on for me. That's how I looked at it. When COVID hit, I knew, embrace it, make it my competitive advantage, pivot and, and grow. And I've created my own business because of COVID. And, and I could talk more about that later, but resilience from what pressure. And, and for me, here's my definition of pressure, a dynamic that can exist when a specific outcome that you're expecting or hoping to achieve appears to be in jeopardy of not happening. So you have to really want something. And that thing you really want is in jeopardy of not happening. While adversity is a little bit broader, it's difficulties and challenges that have the potential of negatively impacting our ability to achieve those outcomes. That's how I look at those two things. Because if you don't care, you, you know, maybe this is a bad example to use, but if I had terminal cancer and, and, and a meteor were coming to the earth, and now, now we're single. I didn't have any kids. Now, like, I just, it'd be like, whatever. I'm going to die in three months anyhow. It, it would be a nothing burger to me. Um, but when you really want to live, life means something. And when that life is in jeopardy of being taken away, 
pressure mounts and that becomes adversity. You know, it's the same in baseball. You know, I'm sitting here base like in that direction is a baseball game. My son, um, he's already finished playing. They, he started today, which was awesome. So I'm very proud of him. And, but baseball is, is, is really interesting. You know, when you're up at bat, you know, it's no balls, no strikes, and, and there's no pressure on you. You got, you got three tries, then all of a sudden there's a strike. Now, okay, you know, we're still good. Now there's a couple balls. Now there's a second strike. Now you got one chance left and the pressure is mounting, mounting, because you really want to get a hit. Because the only reason he's starting tonight is because he had a really good hit on Monday night. That's why he's starting. And he hit an RBI and he essentially won the game for his team. So he really, really wants to get a hit. There's two strikes. That's pressure. So resilience for me is being able to persevere through failure, persevere through the ups and downs of that journey where you're really hoping for something, it's in jeopardy of not happening, and then it doesn't happen or it does happen. And, you know, it's amazing the people that are resilient and they're very often unlikely candidates, people that have experienced failure throughout their life. And I tell a story and then I'll, I'll pass the ball back to you after this, Alan, it'll take a minute to, to share it. For those that don't know who Sarah Blakely is, she founded Spanx. It's footless pantyhose. She grew up about two miles from where I'm sitting right now. My wife grew up with her. I've met her. Uh, she's a billionaire, one of the wealthiest self-made women on the planet earth. And the interesting thing about her is her journey to create this company was not the straight line. It was up and down, took years, and she needed resilience. And you know where she got her resilience? She had a very normal upbringing, upper middle class, went to Clearwater High School, uh, you know, nothing remarkable. But her dad did something very interesting. Every day when she came home from school, her dad would say, Sarah, how did you fail today? Oh, wow. Sarah, how did you fail to think about that? You know, you go, go look at people's social media. I don't see anybody posting their failures out there. I don't hear people bragging about their failures up at the bar or in the locker room, you know, culturally human nature wise, I consider American culture and human nature, the enemy. That's what we have to intervene on. And failure is one of these things that's taboo. And failure is the greatest thing in the world. And, I, and I, I'm not saying this because we're speaking about it right now. When my kids fail, I'm pretty psyched because it's going to give them an opportunity to learn how to grow and an opportunity to develop resilience because you're not born with it. This is this actually a perfect segue into what we're the audience we're speaking to tonight. And, and I'd, I'd love for you to maybe comment on this is. The, the definition of an experienced surgeon is somebody who's made a lot of mistakes. So one of the best talks I ever heard when I was an orthopedic surgery resident was this famous, I mean, world famous spine surgeon talking for 60 minutes about all the times he screwed up, all the cases he messed up. And, and when I teach the sports medicine fellows at Stanford, uh, or when I was a sports medicine fellow, we wanted to, or they want to see mistakes or how to get out of them, because that's the definition of somebody who's really good. You can you can make a mistake, you can learn from that mistake, 
you can, in, in, in medicine, we have something called morbidity and mortality rounds. When something like that happens, we try to learn from it. Um, and I think your concept of maybe not embracing mistakes or how did you fail today, but learning from them and learning, especially from other people's mistakes as best as you can, is how medicine rolls. Go ahead. I'm not going to say, you know, hoping for that, but weaponize them. <laughs> weaponize those mistakes to help you grow. And, you know, it's the only way to grow. It's, it is the only way to grow. And it's also very important for the medical students listening right now is that the best physicians, and, and maybe I'll ask you about the best operators in the world in terms of special ops, they uh, they learn and they will make mistakes. We all make mistakes. Um, and, and that does not make you a bad person. That does not make you a bad doctor. Um, and, you know, it does make you a bad doctor or a bad person if you either cover up your mistake or you don't try to learn from your mistake. One thing I took away, Tom, from what you what you talked about with regard to resilience, though, is I think it's a privilege to be even given the opportunity to be resilient. And that is, you said resilience is in the context of dealing with pressure or uncertainty. So you cannot become resilient. This is what I'd like you to comment on unless you are under pressure or in the context of uncertainty. Does that make sense or am I missing your point? No, you're, 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 you're exactly right. And, you know, there are people in the world that protect themselves, protect their fragile little ego. And yes, I'm mocking that. And, and I'm sorry. And, and I used to be one of them. So I'm raising my hand. And, you know, you know they don't take chances. You, you know, the Garth Brooks song uh you know live like you're dying he has cancer in the song to, to use the cancer metaphor again twice in one call and you, you know what like fail there, there's this story i read once and it's very similar to the sarah blakely thing but it, it, it's a little bit more applicable to you know the medical uh demographic that we're talking to right now and, and in this story there was a a, a restaurant it was the best restaurant in town and this young lady wanted to be a server there and she wanted to be a server there because the tips were off the charts. Uh, it was very prestigious and she was working her way through school and she got hired. But you don't just start working there. They, they make you go through this whole pipeline of training. And she went through it. And a month later, the manager said, hey, Lisa, tonight you're, you're going to get table three. I'm going to give you one table and I want you to. Uh, Embrace it. Have fun tonight. But here's the rule. Here's a piece of paper. Here's a pen. I want you to keep track. I want you to fail at least five times tonight. Write it down. I want you to fail. And the better your failure is, the happier I'm going to be. Like, don't purposely fail, but capture those failures. And, and we're going to talk about it afterwards when everybody leaves and we clean up. And then that's going to be the beginning of your journey to become a great server here at the greatest restaurant in our city. And and he gave her permission to fail. Our culture, failure is unacceptable. Like you, and, and I see it in the medical world. And for everybody on the call, Alan knows this. I, I work with doctors all the time. Dr. Preventure from Stedman Clinic just asked me to come back for the third time. I'll be going back this spring. Um, I, I was a, a guest lecturer at Penn University. Uh, School of Anesthesiology for a couple of years, right up until COVID hit. I work with uh, HCA, et cetera, et cetera. And in and, and, and the world of medicine, get over yourself right now. Just get, you guys are not that important. 
<laughs> and I'm not that important either. But doctors just tend to think of themselves as, as something grander than they truly are. Be humble. Humility will be your friend. And that doesn't mean go fail. But, you know, arrogance will get you nowhere. It's right. one of the cardinal sins of performance optimization and, 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 and perfection. I see more people in the medical field. My dad's a doctor, by the way, as well. I see more people in the medical field that just demand perfection. You, you, you hear the adjectives and the words and the narratives they use, and it's disturbing. And nobody's saying, I want you all to be perfect. When you're doing my knee, my hip, my shoulder, I've had 11 orthopedic things done to me. I, I want you to be perfect. But if, if you strive to be perfect, you're striving for an outcome, and that's going to take your eye off the process. Good point. So here, here's the second one we're going to talk about tonight. And this is salient for, for medical students, residents, um, older attending doctors. Anybody in any stage of life wants to be, I think, relevant. And you, I think, are the world's one of the world's leading experts on relevance. So maybe if if I can ask you, I'm gonna I'm gonna this is gonna be Chat GTP Tom Chaby. So consider yourself a second or third <laughs> second or third year <laughs> medical student. And how do you become relevant to the care of a patient in the hospital? Now it doesn't necessarily be on the technical part of it, but from your experience. Maybe that's somebody who's just joining the SEALs. Maybe that's just somebody who's, you know, had their first experience in a, in theater. But how how do you channel relevance at an early stage in your career? Well, my oldest son will be relevant in a few minutes. He's in the bullpen warming up to be relief pitcher right now. So uh, yeah, we're going to get you off, out of here in 15 no, minutes. No, no, no. We're good. We're good. We're good. And um, pitching is not his forte. Uh, <laughs> He's going to learn how to fail, huh? He well, no, he does. He he's he's adequate. Uh, <laughs> your relevance for those that didn't understand Dr. Mishra's introduction when he mentioned that I was th the director of an effort called Preservation of the Force and Family for Special Operations Command. I, I was leading. I implemented and led an effort that had over five hundred practitioners, psychologists, psychiatrists. Uh, strength and, and conditioning experts. It had physical therapists, uh, licensed clinical social workers, chaplains, and they were all there to help proactively shape and build resilience, to go back to the original word. But one of the reasons this effort, Preservation of the Force and Family, was created was because of a very disturbing trend in statistics and suicide being the most dire of them. And, and we used to, the special operations community before 9-11, we were below the same age group demographic for suicide and suicidal ideations. And five years after 9-11, we were above the same age group demographic in the civilian sector. And so we had to do something. And, and that something was building this thing. I did the forensics and it was painful on in the neighborhood of 75 uh, suicides from special operators and people asso associated to our community. And, and, you know, you're looking for trends, you know, is it girls breaking up? Is it guys breaking up with their wives? Is it, is it money? 
and I will tell you the one thing that was common across the board was a change in a person's relevance. And, you know, they, they may not have lost their relevance entirely, but there was a change in their role. Like people ask, how are you so well adjusted? And it's, it's just because I'm an amazing human. No, it has nothing to do with that. It's because I have extreme relevance. I do. My work, I get to be relevant. Like right now, for me, I can, what a privilege. And thank you for giving it to me tonight, Dr. Mishra. But, you know, I have 13 and 15 year old boys. And, and, you know, I don't have an excuse but to be relevant to them. And being a father is the most important thing in the world to me. And relevance is powerful. It is powerful. And, and, and when people lose it, it's daunting. And when they have it, it is uplifting. And, and, and I encourage everybody, you know, watch Simon Sinek's TED Talk, Start With Why. And he doesn't directly talk about this, but he talks about the power of why. Like that, that question is more important than what. It's more important than how. Like, why are you going to be a doctor? Why are you going to be a doctor? And, and, and if there's no tenant that pulls you closer to the patient, you, you might want to second guess your reason for being a doctor because that's the reason you're there. And, and, and that why, I believe, will help you be relevant in your own world, but also relevant to the people you're serving and you have the privilege to serve. And maybe, maybe Tom, I'll interject a story for the for the medical students. When I was at Michigan and doing something called my sub internship, which is when you try to act like an intern, you're still in your in my time frame. It was in my fourth year of medical school, and I was doing an ICU sub internship, and there was a a patient who was doing absolutely terribly, and she had a uh, pulmonary embolus and a pulmonary embolus is when a clot you know, typically can be from your pelvis or your legs and it goes up into your lungs and it blocks sort of how you I'm an orthopedic surgeon so I've forgotten a lot of this to everybody out there but from what I remember uh, it blocks both your ability to breathe and exchange blood and oxygen and so th this person was in the ICU and this is a long time ago for those of those of you who are listening who might go into interventional radiology but at that time, it would be considered crazy to do something, but this person in an interventional radiology suite, but this person wasn't doing very well. And so when I got done with work one, one day, it was probably six or seven o'clock at night. Uh, this is back before the internet for the dinosaur ages. I actually had to go and look up, how do you treat a pulmonary embolus if they're not doing well? And there was an experimental procedure back then where you would snake a catheter up through a vein and you would literally suck the clot out of the lung. Now that's not uncommon now, but it was very uncommon back then. And so what I did is I spent a couple, three hours in the library. I wrote this whole thing up next morning on rounds. The patient was still not doing well. And I convinced the care team that we should do, we, they should do this procedure. And it was one of the first ones that was done where they did an intervention where they pulled the clot out and that person did incredibly well. Now, I'm not dislocating my shoulder, patting myself on the back too much, but I wanna, I've done this over and over and over and over again throughout my career is if you are maniacal about that single patient and you trying to make a difference for that single patient 
in any way you can. That could be doing that research and trying to find a new procedure. That could be actually just holding their hand or talking to their, to their family. Whatever it is that you are good at doing in that particular moment, in that particular time as a medical student, do it. Because that, and I'm going to check with my, my captain here, will make you more relevant. And then the team will give you more responsibilities and then you will grow in your ability to care for those patients. But Captain Chavy's correct. If you want to lead in my parlance a vital life, you have to put relevance at the absolute top of that. Or, and that's very interesting by the way, um, I have to call you Tom, I don't call you Captain Chavy all the time, that you looked at 75 suicides and, and found that thread of relevance being important. So. Um, being a physician, by the way, is one of the most relevant things you can do on the planet, because when you walk in to the office, to the operating room or wherever you work, every single day you have a chance to make a difference for a person. Uh, that's one of the things that I still absolutely love about what I do. Even today, when it was a difficult day in the office, I really still realized that each single person there I could potentially make a difference for. I want to finish up our time with, with Tom quickly uh, on one thing and then are you for five minutes or so, 10 minutes for some questions, but um, doctors need to perform under pressure. And at the beginning, you talked about, you know, when something bad might happen. Well, everybody here on this call who is a physician or a medical student is has seen somebody die or is going to see somebody die. Uh, and their job is going to be to try to help prevent that. Um, so you've been in, in theater, I think it was 17 tours of duty. Is that correct? Um, in Iraq. A little bit less than that, but yeah, no, I a have, lot. I have you've 13 years downrange. Yeah. Downrange. I love these terms that I don't understand completely, but if you, if you had some thoughts for us about what can we do to perform under pressure so that we can optimize, um, our, the, the the abilities that we've been you know given or the studying that we've been done to try to help save a patient. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I mean, first off, let's establish the fact: pressure and or adversity, it's coming. It's coming, and if it's not coming, you're not pushing yourself, and you're you're in a world where you're just trying to uh, stay comfortable, and that's okay. Nothing against that. But, uh, you know, the, the demographic on this call, people going to medical school, people that want to be in the OR, adversity and pressure is coming. So so how do you deal with that? And, and you're not born with it. You know, it's those tangible things like speed. Sure, you can get faster. But I don't know. When somebody's six or seven years old, you get a pretty good idea if they're going to be fast or not. Intelligence, we, we, we pretty much know where you are on the IQ scale pretty early going there. And, and But the intangible things like resilience, how do you respond when that pressure hits? How do you respond when that adversity hits? How do you even know it's coming? And, and I will start off with this. Owning pressure is a skill. It is a skill. It is such a skill, and this is a, not a shameless advertisement. I wrote an entire book. 220 pages that you can't buy on Barnes and Noble, but I, I, this is what I apply with my, my people that I get the privilege to coach and work with. And there's science behind it. There's art behind it. You know, a couple of things like the bandwidth theory. Do you know how many bits of information that you, you, you can accommodate 
per second. It's 120. I have no idea what that even means, but this conversation I'm having right now takes about 120 bits of information. So that gives me all I need to know is I can't have two conversations simultaneously. And people that try to do that, myself, I'm raising my hand, we're delusional. You can't do it effectively. Now, if one of the conversations isn't that important, maybe you can get away with that. And then there's what I call the chemical theory. And, you know, dare, dare I go down this road with all these medical students, um, I'm not going to mention any of the hormones or the neurotransmitters. But guess what? We have a mindset, how we perceive an environment we're in, how we perceive a dynamic, something in the OR goes wrong. What's your mindset going to be? You made a mistake. What's your mindset? I'll bet you Sarah Blakely's mindset towards mistakes is completely different than 99.9% of the people on the planet Earth. And her dad gave her that gift. What a great gift. So mindset is where our thoughts come from. And then our thoughts, this one has taken me years to wrap my noodle around, our thoughts boomerang back to our brain, to our different glands to trigger the release of different hormones and different chemicals that in turn control our physiology. Now, if you, if you want to optimize your performance, you have to optimize the release of these chemicals. I don't know the names of any of them except cortisone, adrenaline, you know, and then, then I'm done. And, and, and I don't want to know the names of them, but I do know the actions that will lead to me releasing the best set of chemicals, hormones, and neurotransmitters in my body. I know what those actions are, and I'm going to talk about them in a second. And I want to do that deliberately because owning pressure is a skill. It's a skill. It just doesn't happen. It's not like, wow, that guy's Iceman. That girl's choke woman. It's That's not how it works. Most people have no idea. They don't deliberately learn this, but you can. And, and for me, the first piece is being aware. And, and I'll go back to my definition. When you really, really, really want a specific outcome, the odds of there being pressure in that moment go up significantly. The minute those outcomes you're after are in jeopardy of not happening, pressure elevates. Okay, so you got to be aware. If you're aware, you can intervene. There's all, you know, people say breathing. Breathing is not a strategy. I'm sorry. Breathing's great. I consider it a tool to own pressure, but it's an intervention tool. It's not a strategy. The first strategy that I'll, I'll offer you is disciplined thinking. What does that mean? I, I'm just plain and simple. Don't think stupid shit. I was speaking to a group of doctors and there was one doctor in the front of the room, a French Canadian guy. And while I was talking about this very topic, he was snarling at me. And I knew at the end he was going to hammer me for not speaking medically accurate and all these things. But I said, be disciplined, be disciplined. So I stayed on my track. I stayed on my talk and I refused to let him pull me off my process. But I, I returned to his snarl two or three times through my 45, 50 minute talk. And then at the end, I went to Q and a, and this French Canadian guy goes, Tom, I have a question. I can't do the French Canadian accent. So I won't, uh, I have a question and I want to make a comment. So he asked his question. It was a very good question. And then his comment was a little narcissistic, but I'll give it to you. He said, everyone in the room knows me. I am the deputy of this entire facility. I am 55 years old. I've heard hundreds of talks. And today's talk was the best talk I've ever heard. And he truly said that. And I'm not saying that 
to prop myself up. I'm actually saying it to do the exact opposite because I perceived him. I was thinking stupid shit while I was speaking and I almost let it pull me off track. You got to stay disciplined. The second thing is go automatic. This is why you're in school. This is why you have the cadaver lab. This is why you have mentors. This is why you watch videos. This is why you read Gray's Anatomy and all those other books I see up on the bookshelves in doctors' offices. So you can learn things so drop-dead cold you don't have to think about them. Like me talking about this, I don't think about it. But a better example for all of us is driving. Like I could talk like this while I'm driving because I don't think when I'm driving. You don't either. How many times have you gone from point A to point B and you're like, how did I get there? Did I go through a red light? Did I run over a cat? Like you don't even remember the drive, but you did it and you did it safely in all likelihood. You were thinking about something you were, you know, you know, things were weighing on your mind and, and you're, you did it automatically. So the more things in your world that you can make automatic, that you don't have to think about them, the better you'll do under pressure. Fact. The third thing is how will you contextualize the dynamics you're going to enter? Like a mistake. Somebody dying, maybe. Or somebody watching you that's grading you, that's evaluating you, that's going to determine your future and what internship you get. All these things. How are you going to contextualize that? I have a saying, C or T. Challenge or threat. Are you going to contextualize that that situation as a challenge or as a threat? I say C every time. If you can learn how to do this, and it's a skill to just say, hey, I speak English well. I know my topic. I enjoy speaking publicly. This is a challenge. I'm going to bring my A game and get after it. Does that mean I'm going to do my best? It doesn't. But I'm looking at it as a challenge, not, oh, no, this person who's in the audience might not give me an opportunity and I need another paid gig this year. And I'm speaking about my industry right now. You're looking at that as a threat. And I guarantee you when you do that, you're going to set the trigger because of your mindset and your thoughts to get the wrong chemicals. And those chemicals are going to do all these things. The butterflies the butterflies, we all know what they are. When I learned what the butterflies were, I was so mad. You know, I always thought it was like pixie dust or, yeah, it, it is a little bit of a, a chemical flowing through through our system. But it's more, from what I understand, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's more when we go into fight or flight. It's more about our body is so brilliant. Our mind, the computer is so amazing it shunts, there's a medical term for you, it shunts the blood flow from our digestive tract and diverts it to our arms and legs so we can run away or we can fight. That's DNA evolution. That's what's happening. And the void in our stomach creates the nauseousness. When I learned that, I was like, oh my gosh, the perspiration, the elevated heart rate, the tunnel vision. Tunnel vision is never good. It's never good. Guess what? When you go into fight or flight, Study after study proves your ability to be creative and come up with creative solutions when you're running into a challenge in EOR deteriorates significantly. These are all things I don't want. So I set the conditions to be challenge, challenge, challenge. And the rules of making it a challenge, you have to really want to succeed. You might really have to really want the outcomes. 
You have to know what's required and you have to truly be capable of doing what's required. That's it. If you can do those three things, you can make anything a challenge. The, the next one is process over outcome. I worked with Coach Saban, and, and, and the first thing he said to me is, Tom, don't talk about winning and losing. I'm like, we're good. I don't talk about winning and losing. Talk about the process. If you're focusing on outcomes, you're focusing in what tense of time, past, present, or future. You're thinking about the future. And if you're thinking about the future, you're not in the present. If you're not in the present, there's no way you can execute your process with precision. Fact. Process over outcome. And the last thing, the last strategy is learn how to be a neutral thinker. Positive thinking is the most overrated thing on the planet Earth. I'm totally positive. I'm positive. Yesterday, Alan and I spoke. I was positive I could bring some value tonight, and he'll tell me if I did or didn't later. I'm positive a couple minutes before we got on that I could pull this off from my car and I could simultaneously watch the game. The game's over now, by the way. I think we won. And I'm positive. But the minute I get into performing, me speaking right now is performing. You and EOR would be performing. Somebody walking up to their significant other and proposing to them to become their spouse for the rest of their life is performing. The minute I go into my performance mode, I go neutral. I, I worked with a world champion athlete. We were talking about negative thinking versus positive thinking versus neutral thinking. And he, and he, and he it was the greatest rant I've ever heard. He goes, positive thinking? I can't trust positive thinking. When I was 18 years old, I was positive I would make the Olympics. I didn't. When I was 21, I was positive I'd break the world record. I didn't. Until I learned how to go neutral, did I achieve all those outcomes I was after. Until I went neutral, that's when I could focus on the process versus the outcome. Because if you're thinking positive, you're thinking about the future. So I'll stop there. But let me repeat the five. Discipline thinking. Go automatic, set the conditions to be challenging, not threatening, process over outcome, go neutral. Neutral thinking is the greatest gift to performance that very few people leverage.